Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast about the UK Christianity. Oh, and... oh, oh, Merry Christmas, one and all! Hey Ben, are how you, you doing? Are you, you going to do that the whole podcast? Oh yeah. How um, you doing, Ben? Merry Christmas. I, uh, why, why are you so happy? This is not your vibe at all. It's Christmas, Ben. Where's your Christmas spirit? <laughs> I guess, I, I, yeah, I'm not really a Christmas person, Adam. I'll be honest with you, I'm not. I'm not feeling your vibes right now. Hey, 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 Ben. Maybe you just need. Maybe you need a present. I've got a present. <laughs> I've got a present for you, Ben. Yeah. Oh, what 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 present have you got? That's always a worrying thing coming from you. It's it, it's it's the love of Jesus. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Um. Thanks. I I thought I already had it. I'll be honest with you. I I wasn't aware I was lacking it, but thank you for that anyway. Um what why on earth do you love Christmas so much, Adam? Why do I Because it's well, I, to be honest, I spend the rest of the year pretty grumpy. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I love Christmas. Do you know what? This is no no word of a lie, right? I genuinely harbor a deep desire to be like a mall Santa when I'm older. <laughs> that, okay. That is something we could probably spend the rest of the episode diving into the psychology <laughs> of. Can I can I actually do my intro now? Is that Oh only if you're not gonna be a Scrooge. Well, what I'll do is I'll probably be a Scrooge, but I'll put some jingle bells over it in production, alright? <laughs> alright, alright, we'll do that. Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast about the UK, Christianity and the left. I'm Ben Molyneux-Hetherington, my pronouns are he, him, and as always, I'm joined by your favourite mall Santa, Adam Spears, whose pronouns are also he, him, and we have Damon Garcia, a brilliant liberation theologian and someone whose work on YouTube you may well have seen. His pronouns are also he, him. How are you doing, Damon? Are you excited to be here? Yes, of course I'm excited to be here. That is the wrong answer. You have totally misjudged the vibe <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> oh my God. I'm ready though. Damon, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to people who may not know you? Yeah, I'm Damon Garcia. I'm in the United States, in California. And I talk about liberation theology and leftist politics on YouTube and Twitch and all that. And it's pretty fun. And um, but all my conversations are usually centered around the U.S., and so that's why I'm excited to be a part of this conversation. And I guess that is like kind of like typical of the U.S. is treating the U.S. as if it's the entire world. But I'm I'm ready to stretch my whole outlook today. <laughs> And that's exciting for us because the U.S. is possibly the only country the U.K. can critique for being self-obsessed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Time to get jolly on your naughty asses. Okay. 
Adam, you've been very good. You've been very well behaved. Would you like to talk about Christmas? Yes, yes. Let's talk about Christmas. Yes. Brilliant. Let's let's talk about how awful the Christmas coronavirus rules are then. Oh, oh my no. goodness. No. <laughs> Damon, I, this is one where you're probably, you know, looking at the British coronavirus response and going, oh, that doesn't seem so bad compared to us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it is... We've not been doing brilliantly. We have one of the worst death tolls in Europe, adjusted for population. It turns out that when you put uh, someone in charge whose whole thing is, I'm a bit incompetent but lovable, and something serious happens, it doesn't really cut the mustard. Mm -hmm. We've announced, we've been going through, uh, we had a second lockdown that led into a system of tiers for different parts of the country, which no one really understands. And then there is the announcement that Basically, all the corona rules are getting suspended in time for Christmas. Yay. So you can travel, you can see up to three households as though you're all in the same household, and there's other things as well. But basically, a bunch of the rules are being suspended over Christmas. Wow. The first thing to say is that on a personal level, that's quite nice. Uh, yeah, my, my in-laws are coming down for Christmas. I'm looking forward to spending time with family, and I don't want to... I don't want to crap on anyone who's looking forward to seeing their family. It has been an awful year and not getting to see family has been, has been really difficult. I, I haven't seen face to face my family in a very long time. And I know Adam, you're much the same. So yeah, <laughs> if yeah. you are looking forward to Christmas and getting to see your family, because the restrictions are lifted, I, I am entirely there with you, and I don't begrudge that at all. But also, as far as I know, the coronavirus doesn't celebrate Christmas and yeah. isn't probably going to stop infecting people because of Christmas. And so what we're looking at is that there's been an active decision to preserve Christmas and the opportunity to see family in the UK, knowing that it is going to lead all but inevitably to a, a good spike in the number of coronavirus cases and ultimately deaths in the country. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the things I do want to kind of think about a little bit, and I, I'm not saying I have any solutions or, or want to go super in-depth to this, but there are other solutions that would allow some level of contact with family that are not authoritarian as well like we could have i mean the thing is we could have nipped this in the bud theoretically by taking very different a very different approach um to to coronavirus in the first place whether that be a more authoritarian way like like vietnam who i think had was it like they had one death or something two deaths maybe but like everyone stayed in their homes and had food brought to them Right, or or whether you do it the other way and look at what a lot of anarchists were saying and, and talking about affinity groups and that kind of thing, there were solutions that were potentially available to us that we never looked at because, frankly, it's always ever going to be about the economy. It, certainly under this this or or probably any government, frankly. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And um, I think we've talked before, Adam, about you know if you're a leftist. And the police are getting new sweeping powers and new laws are being put in place to enable them to punish people of, for relatively minor things. 
that needs to worry you. And that is not to say we are not coronavirus deniers. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> this is not an anti-vax podcast. I personally am looking forward to getting my second dose of autism when I get my vaccination. <laughs> so I'm going to become even more powerfully autistic. It's going to be great. But yeah, it is, it is to say that actually what we've been doing hasn't been working, but has given a lot of power to people in authority in a way that is a bit worrying and i don't know if that's necessarily the you know i I don't think it's fair to say that that's why it's been done i think it's just that you know conservatives default to authoritarian approaches uh, when they're struggling to know what to do there definitely is an aspect of we have to be wary of giving so much more power to the government and to the police because what i, I was thinking too how at one point they were talking about making it criminal offense to be out in public without a mask. And so you could get arrested if you're out there not wearing a mask and all the like a bunch of like liberal Democrats here were like, that sounds great. That's what we need to do because we're tired of people not wearing masks. But it's like, we have to consider that ends up hurting the communities that are already overly policed. And now they have another reason to mess with people (laughs) in public, which is usually people of color and uh, the homeless population. And so they don't even think about that. And so everyone is screwed over. And there's uh, also, we keep hearing stories about areas where homeless people usually sleep and being pushed out of there and taking all their stuff out because of coronavirus. It's not safe and all that. And it's just ridiculous because they have nowhere to go. Yeah, so it's it's very strange. And, um, and of course, it's just frustrating also with the conservatives who are saying it's all a hoax and it's not real. And it's it. And that's like, it's frustrating because I think the entire time from the beginning, there's always been this mindset of this will be over in like a couple of weeks. I remember that at the very beginning, people were like planning like, oh, yeah, of course, we can't make this happen right now, but uh, a couple of weeks it'll be over. So then we could do that. And it, that just stayed. And so eventually you had all these people just go back to doing things they, 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 that isn't safe to do because they're just over it. I get also it's difficult with um, family gatherings, Thanksgiving and over here and now Christmas coming up and the the right over here is now using it to push their culture war saying the left hates Thanksgiving because they don't want people to be thankful because if people are thankful, then they're patriotic and America and these leftists don't want people to be patriotic. And it's just completely ridiculous. And then, and now they're saying that they hate Christmas and in California, we just, it's been even uh, more difficult in a lot of States over here. And we just entered another lockdown, another stay at home order. And once again, it's like our, our, uh, evil communist California governor hates Christmas and hates Christians when he is like a total neoliberal corporatist Democrat. It's awful. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. 
Christians for Palestine UK, is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group, Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email Christians for Palestine UK at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. It's it, it's always incredible to me to see um, the kinds of people that um, American right wingers in particular think genuinely seem to think are communists. Yeah. Um, oh, it's hilarious. But it's happening in the UK as well. Yeah. You know, the, the the way that the Black Lives Matter movement is being referred to extensively as Marxist. And I have to say that although there are Marxist elements to it, I don't think it's an inherently Marxist movement. More's the pity. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That's uh, what I've been telling <laughs> some of my like uh, local close friends who don't really understand all this stuff. It's like... I, I don't know. I heard it's Marxist. I don't really know what that is, but I heard it's Marxist. So that's kind of bad. And I tell them like, it's not Marxist, but Marxism is good. Like, let's have that conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just red scare thing, you know, all the time, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll say too about like people having these family gatherings is it's tough because you never know how you're going to, you might get coronavirus because my Aunt and uncle visited from out of state. I hadn't seen them in several years, but they uh, were visiting this state to go visit one of their friends who was very old and dying of cancer. And so they wanted to see him um, before he gets worse. And so they stopped here first for a night and um, were telling us that they just got tested because they wanted to be sure that they keep him safe as they go visit him and they're clear. And uh, we hung out with them. The next day they went over there. And then later I uh, got a phone call from them and they said that they got coronavirus at that guy's house from his wife. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, it's like they're trying so hard to not bring it in, but they got it from there. And I think that's why, and we'll, we'll, we will move on for this a moment, why it's really important as, as leftists to reject uh, a personal blaming for this, yeah. you know? It is yes, there are better things and worse things you can do, um, but ultimately, it's it's a virus that that is pretty uh, pretty uh, opportunistic and yeah. sneaky, you know, sneaky virus. 
the, the ways of dealing with it are not about everyone doing the right thing because actually it's not always clear what the right thing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you were saying, Damon, your your aunt and uncle sounded like they tried to do everything exactly right and still ended up with catching coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really important to avoid that personal responsibility, particularly as conservative governments are trying to push a personal responsibility narrative to avoid their culpability for what's happened. Yeah. Christmas apples. We got Macintosh. Get your Christmas apples. Red delicious. Suppence apiece while they last. We... They won't last long the way you're eating them. Hey, I'm creating scarcity. Drives the prices up. <sighs> Rizzo. I... <clears throat> Hello. Welcome to the Muppet Christmas Carol. I am here to tell the story. And I am here for the food. My name is Charles Dickens. And my name is Rizzo the Rat. Hey, wait a huh? second. You're not Charles Dickens. I am too. No, a blue furry Charles Dickens who hangs out with a rat. Absolutely. Charles Dickens was a 19th century novelist, a genius. Oh, you were too kind. Why should I believe you? Well, because I know the story of A Christmas Carol like the back of my hand. Prove it. All right. Um, there's a little mole on my thumb and uh, a scar on my wrist from when I fell off my bicycle. No, 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 no. Don't tell us your hand. Tell us the story. Oh, oh, thank you. Yes. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Oh, uh, pardon me? That's how the story begins, Rizzo. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Oh. As dead as a doornail. That's a good beginning. It's creepy and kind of spooky. Oh, thank you, Rizzo. You're welcome, Mr. Dickens. I want to talk a bit about the ways that Christmas is used by capitalism to carry on upholding capitalism. Uh, I'm always really interested in the way that people so look forward to Christmas as a distraction and a break from the monotony of their normal lives. You know, people talk about, I'm so excited for Christmas, you know, almost from the end of the summer, really. And I think there's a lot to do with the way it's used to distract people from basically the the crapness of their working conditions and the way that capitalism keeps normal working people from the full enjoyment of their labour as well as from the full fruits of it. So I'm interested to talk a little bit about the function that Christmas serves in upholding capitalism. Obviously I love Christmas but I am well aware of how how it has functioned in history and, and particularly in modern history and, and you can trace I think elements of what you're saying back and i think damon your video does that quite well when you talk about charles dickens and and his role and i don't know if you mentioned him but um the other big one would be um washington irving and and the role he played as well in in kind of creating this what we now think of as a traditional christmas yeah this uh it's interesting that shift that happened because there was kind of like a a dark period where Christmas wasn't celebrated like it used to be. In the Middle Ages, people would celebrate Christmas. Well, before, first off, before the Middle Ages, I think when it started to be celebrated, it was simply just the day you went to church that they talked about Christ's birth. It was Christ Mass, the Mass where we talk about Christ's birth. And then it eventually became a bigger service than the other services. And then it became a bigger deal. And by the middle ages, it would be a day where you would get drunk and debaucherous with your family and friends, even for days. It's like, that's the 12 days of Christmas. It's the 25th to the January 6th. And which traditionally the idea behind that is that 
12 days after Jesus' birth, the Magi came and gave him gifts. And eventually over time, uh, that celebration started becoming less and less, especially through the industrial age. And um, people wouldn't give their employees time off to have that kind of celebration as much. And then over here in the United States, the Puritans related the that big Christmas celebration with the Dutch and the degenerate English who uh, aren't as pure <laughs> and domesticated and civilized as us Puritans. And so it was illegal for a while to celebrate Christmas over here. And then eventually it got brought back because businesses started bringing it back as a time where you could buy gifts for your family. But then the way they're able to bring it back as Christians was through this idea that Christmas is a very quiet, gentle, domesticated time inside your home uh, where Santa St. Nick's Santa Claus sneaks in and puts gifts under the tree and it's very quiet. And so they're able to bring it back that way. Also, it was, it was part of the influence of England through Charles Dickens' Carol philosophy, which is like, this is a time where the the rich have an extra big heart and give to the lowly. And we all like open our hearts to one another and appreciate one another in a whole new way. And it's like that, that now is like how we think of Christmas now, especially all the Christmas stories that came as a result of that kind of philosophy. It's interesting to think now how that shift happened, because I think now that just feels so forced. It feels like you're saying, okay, this is the time of the year where you have to be extra nice and extra caring and uh, buy extra things for your friends and family. And uh, if you're angry about anything or sad about anything, just stuff that down because it's Christmas time. We don't want to hear that. This is this is a family gathering. We don't want to hear you talk about problems in your life. And it's, so it's like that. I think that's why so many people hate Christmas because it just feels like a time where we just suppress all of our real feelings in order to, mm. to pretend to be super happy and thankful. But um, I think that definitely is a result of that like new kind of domesticated suppression onto this whole Christmas thing. But, but yeah, I, I wish it would be more like it was in the middle ages. <laughs> and I wish we had socialism so that we could afford time off uh, to celebrate that way as well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think something that I think is really interesting is, you know, we all know that it's almost a cliche now to talk about the ways capitalism has taken over Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it is a time to to buy things and spend money, and love is about how much money you spend on people. Um, but what I am quite interested in, you kind of touched on the roots of it in that, that Carol philosophy you talked about, is the kind of conservative christians who lecture about it's not about spending money and presents it's about the real meaning of christmas (laughs) and i could i could talk for a little while about how there is no real meaning of christmas um Mm. because you know it is when it's not the fact it's a multi-faith celebration it's a holy time for muslims as well as christians um but it's also a deeply cultural as well as religious celebration so it has all these different meanings but i think what's really interesting is to analyze the way that that's quite a skin deep anti-capitalism you know it is it it looks anti-capitalist on the surface but the reality is it's drawn from you know what you you talked about damon that carol philosophy which assumes a, a hierarchy 
and assumes that it's about a bit of generosity and a bit of charity once a year and definitely not more often than that. Um, but actually, ultimately, yeah, the working class should still be, you know, much less well off than the the upper classes. Yeah, it is. It is funny this idea that that skin deep anti capitalism or or what I often hear anti consumerism, which is just like, yeah, being you shouldn't buy things as much. But it, it, that's as far as it goes. Yeah, it's like people want you to buy things, but you shouldn't buy things as much. When it's like it's completely ignoring the larger causes of these issues and and why they're constantly pushing these consumerist um, ideals, it is pretty pretty interesting. This idea also that like it's not about getting gifts; it's not it's about the real meaning of Christmas. And yet everything is like so mixed together. And and now also in the United States, there's a lot of Christians who try really hard to do apologetics and argue that the tree actually is connected to Christ and the gifts actually are connected to Christ and the elves really are connected. Like they'll find like all these weird mental gymnastics to argue that actually there is no pagan origins, that there's actually real connections to the Bible and stuff like that. And then also like, I don't know what it's like over there, but over here there's the whole war on Christmas stuff. Is that is there a war on Christmas over there? Like put Christ back in Christmas? It's more of a skirmish, I would say, isn't it? It's not really a war, but it, it's there. But I think it is one of the the right wing culture war things that we're importing more and more. Actually, I do okay. think it's starting, and I think it's inoculating amongst conservative Christians, as sadly some of the worst culture war stuff does tend to over here. But yeah. it is not it is not the extent you know that you get. P- I, I, people aren't going to have fist fights over saying happy holidays. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I'm willing to, but <laughs> yeah. So that's what's so weird is, like you said, there's multiple holidays in December, so it makes sense to say Happy Holidays. And it, what's also strange is if we really want to get traditional about things, Christmas should not be celebrated at all until Christmas Day, because before Christmas isn't the Christmas season; it's Advent season. If we want to get traditionally Christian, and so Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. But Advent is also supposed to be traditionally a very somber, quiet, reflective, Mm -hmm. contemplative time, similar to Lent. And part of the reason it's supposed to be like very somber and sad is also because so that Christmas is extra joyful, which is what why Lent is like that leading to Easter. And so like if we want to be traditional Christians, it it should be being very to ourselves, contemplative, not saying much about Christmas, not putting up all these decorations the entire month of December and then Christmas day, then we celebrate. And maybe if we want to be traditional celebrate for 12 days, but then, which we do, we do. Yeah. (laughs) But this idea of like starting in November, putting up all these Christmas gifts and telling everybody Merry Christmas. October. October. There was someone, someone a few doors down from me had their Christmas tree up in October. <laughs> and, and yeah, and then like the whole month, wh- wherever you are in public, when you leave saying Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, like that's that's a very modern way of looking at things. But I wish more Christians who, who say they care so much about being traditional understood that. 
I suspect that part of the reason why you couldn't have a Lent style period of Advent is, you know, going going back to what I was saying about, you know, people openly talk about, oh, I really need the Christmas season to kind of get me through <laughs> through my job. Right? Yeah. You know, that is yeah, you know, people people kind of know instinctively that things aren't quite right about their job. And that, you know, that Christmas mm-hmm. season is a time to let off steam, whereas an Advent season where where there is a, a somberness might force you to confront the actuality of what it's like to be yeah. to be a worker under capitalism. Yeah, I think it's worth looking into what you were saying, Damon, about you know obviously where where that's where the modern celebration of Christmas has come from. Because a, another thing to remember, I think, is that uh, Washington Irving, for example, was part of a quite deliberate effort to reframe Christmas to take away from riots that were happening particularly in New York but in other places at the time because of a lack of workers rights and I think lack of jobs as well and so Christmas has quite deliberately been used has its its modern origins quite deliberately in suppression of workers but I still love it I still love Christmas <laughs> okay Adam go on then you, you can why do you still love Christmas <laughs> yeah, you can take the lead this is your time <laughs> Okay, I I appreciate that Christmas has a pretty dodgy history of it, especially a pretty dodgy modern history. But what I don't like to do is to kind of throw everything out, right? Like what I want to know is, yes, it has this history, but what can we do with that? How can we take that and effectively do what the right does to us all the time and subvert it? You know, how can we take their thing and make it ours? Which I guess in some way is is the job of a leftist Christian, right? To go, okay, we've got this thing, we're kind of on board with it, but it's got an awful, awful history. How do we how do yeah. we how do we make it work for us? Yeah, and so I think, you know, for me, to to sound like the kind of arch right winger, I wanna take it back <laughs> to the original Christmas, the real <laughs> meaning of Christmas where the sweet baby Jesus laid his head down in a manger and so on and so forth. When it gets down to it, the Christmas story, no matter what you think about the historicity of it, has some really radical stuff in it, right? You know, when you you look at the words of the Magnificat, right? And the words of the Magnificat are really, really radical. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He's cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty, right? So this is like, I mean, this is pretty radical stuff. And this is the sort of thing that the church just kind of reads on a Sunday like this. Um, he, you know, he uh, he's done this and the rich are really bad, but we're all middle class. So we don't realize what we're reading, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? Um, but when we get back to this, that is radical. Um, and then we've got things like, you know, and, and again, I've heard people refute this. That's fine, whatever. But the idea of Jesus as being like a refugee, right? Jesus and his family having to flee to, to Egypt because the powerful were coming after him. And then we've got like inclusive interfaith stuff, right? So the Magi, right? People don't know what Magi is or, or they say, oh, three kings. Magi were Zoroastrian priests, right? And there's no hint of of it being like, well, you have to follow Jesus or you're going to be cast into hell. No, the Zoroastrian priests, the Magi, were the first people to like recognize the divinity of Jesus, right? And so that is crazy radical. So yeah, that's the first thing I think 
you know, if, we, if we're going to talk about how we can kind of look at Christmas as a positive thing, well, let's read the story. Yeah, I think it's entirely right to say we we don't need to claim or care about historicity. You know, the point is that this is the story as we have it yeah. in, in Scripture. And I think for me particularly, in a way, it's almost become a bit of a like a liberal and left Christian cliche to be like, oh, Jesus was a refugee. But I do think there's something so like... Uh, just important in the fact that you know it's specifically mentioned in scripture in a way that you know is is almost a bit of a throwaway comment obviously it's positioning him as this kind of new moses in some way because he's coming out of egypt but it, it explicitly says yeah this guy had to flee and seek refuge in another country um and as someone who you know who works with refugees um it is i don't know to to conceptualize god as someone who has experienced the things that they have experienced in some way i think is extremely powerful also want to say there is i think it's part of the just protestant spirit in general to like seek the original meaning to assume the importance of the original meaning over the church tradition no matter what it says because that, that's what the protestants are like actually we think the Let's go back to Augustine, and we think the original, you guys got it wrong, or all that stuff. And so I think that's part, part of, like, just inside us, when uh, deep inside us, to, to be like, wait, hold on, let's go back. Let's look at what the Bible actually says. Let's look at what this story actually was trying to communicate. I also, like, find the, the Christmas story extremely radical, and especially the, Manif- the Magnificat, to be, like, tearing down the... Uh, rulers from their thrones Mm. and lifting up the lowly i find it fascinating that for mary those two things are intricately linked yeah that you can't have one without the other and the reason is because of the way that even came to be rulers are able to get on their thrones through the suppression of the lowly and so that's why they're they're linked you can't have one without the other and i think some people like to think yeah this is a time where we could lift up the lowly give the poor some more charity but it's to have them celebrate with the rich and the rich are the ones who lift them up this season. But Mary had a vision of the lowly are lifted up because the rich and the rulers are torn down. And that song that she sings, the Magnificat, also has multiple direct quotes throughout the Hebrew Bible. And so this is a song that Jewish people were singing for a long time because that is what they saw throughout the pattern of history that rulers rise up empires rise up have a monopoly on violence and then they're crushed and the exploited have a moment of freedom until there's another empire a new age of a new empire in power and then they're crushed and they understand god as on the side of the oppressed the exploited the lowly each and every time and against whatever empire rises up and so to believe in this God is to believe in that vision that the way history is supposed to go is toward the rulers being brought down from their thrones and the lowly being brought up. And so Mary sees the the baby in her womb connected to that large vision and names him Jesus, which was an Aramaic Yeshua, which was just the modern Aramaic version of the Hebrew name Yahshua, or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And what I also find interesting is during this time, there were multiple kids being named uh, Yeshua. 
this is a very common name. If you were to just shout it out in a public area, a bunch of people would turn. But but I also find that fascinating to think that must mean people were desperate for that salvation. If a bunch of mm-hmm. um, people were naming their kid, the Lord saves. And there's actually like a tradition of that kind of thing happening. Like um, the, the Midrash around Samuel for Samuel t- uh, talks about like, which is like rabbis writing extra details in order to uh, extrapolate the meaning of the text. And they added that there actually multiple women were naming their child Samuel at that time. And then when Samuel exhibited like a special kind of wisdom, they realized, oh, this is the Samuel. And so I think there is that tradition of like people uh, within a generation naming their kid the same thing and naming their kid Jesus in hopes that God would save them. And in their context, that what they needed saving from was the Roman Empire. And the Roman, out real quick, the Roman Empire with Caesar also had a miraculous birth story. Augustus Caesar, who was also called the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and celebrating his birthday, they had that all built into the Roman imperial cult before they said that stuff about Jesus. And to, so to say that about Jesus, that actually Jesus is the son of God and the savior of the world who had this miraculous birth and, and also adding details to this miraculous birth that made it even more miraculous than any other miraculous birth story that any religious tradition had was a way of saying this birth of this savior is actually for, for the salvation of everyone, not just a specific people group, but for everyone. So it was radically subversive to use the language they did to describe this miraculous birth story. And I really like how you've situated that Magnificat in the Jewish tradition. I think that's a really mm-hmm. powerful thing to do, to say this is not a break, but this is a you know a, a continuation of that, that Jewish tradition, I think is a really interesting thing. In terms of just touching on Mary quickly, Adam, a little while ago, you, were, you and I were talking about a passage in James. Yeah, James 5. James 5. And what, what, give us a quick taste of James 5. Ah, oh, James 5 is a banger. Yeah, James 5, James 5 is like the classic kind of go-to thing for Christian leftists. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it starts straight away. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Uh, you hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's, it's a banger. The reason I bring that up is that in the tradition, the author of James is James, the brother of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we don't need to make any claims about historicity for that. But taking but, that, but if, the- but if you think it wasn't him, you're going to hell. Um, you probably hate <laughs> Christmas as well. Yeah, obviously. We're just going to leave that unsaid, but that's fine. <laughs> no, but that is, you know, obviously what you, you start to develop this picture of this, you know, radical family headed up by Mary as this radical matriarch. And then you have Jesus, who I think we'd all agree has got these pretty radical ideas, and James, who is, you know, almost continuing those themes of the Magnificat in there. And I really love the idea of, of Jesus as coming from this family that's kind of steeped in this this radicalism. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd also like to point out what we see through the Magnificat and through 
this Jesus even preaching, the last will be first and the, the first shall be last and woe to the rich and woe to those who are filled. And then James saying that, like, it's clear they're, they have a radical hope. And that's what Advent is all about too, hope. Yeah. But the hope is not in the system getting better. The hope is in the absolute collapse and destruction of the system. And that's what leads to actual liberation. And so during this season, people will talk about hope and the hope for justice and for liberation. But there's going to be a whole lot of priests out there who's, who also add on about like reforms. Like re- this is going to happen through reforms. Over here with um, Joe Biden winning the presidency, there's a whole lot of progressive Christians who are just like, look, everything's going to get better now. Joe Biden is the, the Christian choice. And now we got we got fascism out. And now it's it's all great and we could go back to brunch and it's like <laughs> ridiculous i heard joe biden was the messiah have i been misled on that <laughs> it's awful and so so there's i that's that's like one of the narratives i'm combating over here is this idea that the liberation we're fighting for as christians is not going to happen through the democratic party and it's not even going to happen through capitalism especially and so like i said when we talk about that radical hope of mary and of jesus and of james we have to realize their hope was not in the system but in the liberation of the people through the collapse of the system look you know i'd do anything you did but i'm a jehovah's witness we're not supposed to celebrate christmas i've been thinking about that i may have a loophole what if you were a Jehovah's Witness that was merely pretending to be into Christmas, gathering clues and blending in to take down the holidays from within? You mean like a spy investigating, making it seem like I'm celebrating when actually I'm infiltrating Santa's operation? Yoip, going deep cover past enemy lines, making everybody think I'm on the Christmas side, rocking warm sweaters, hanging big ass lights. If the fat man can see me, yo, it's gotta look right. I watch all the TV specials that I never could. I'll even cry during the sad ones like James Bond would. And when the big night comes, it's time to set the bait. Cold milk, hot cookies, decorative plates. And he'll come down the chimney and it will be just him and me, but he won't know we're enemies because I'll play sincere. Bring a trap like that. Hug him tight. Get on his lap and tell him he can come back every year. Because I am Jehovah's most secret witness. So I might have to dedicate my life to Christmas and act just like I love it till the day I die. Kind of sore of Christmas on the spectrum. None of your business. Thoughts too fast to comprehend. Just want to do right by my friends. If years were seasons, this December would be the December of our December. More blueprints than Howard Hughes. But if there are blueprints, how do we choose? We have to be happy to get to the end. We have to save Christmas to save our friends. We have to save Christmas to save our friends. We have to save Christmas to save our friends. Hey guys. I'm I'm a big fan of this is gonna sound so weird, but like culture. <laughs> you know, like like I love the way people live their lives right the things that we've done throughout the ages i love you know i did i did the uh, camino for anyone who knows what that is a, a few years ago which is uh, a big pilgrimage through northern spain and one of the reasons i did that was because i really wanted to see all the stories and sort of folk tales that have grown up along the route because like you know honestly the camino de santiago it's probably not James at the end, right? Like it's probably, or in fact, the, the, a pilgrimage route existed before Christianity, right? So, so it's probably not what people think it is, but that doesn't matter, right? Because the beautiful thing is, is how these traditions grow up and how we talk about them and how we form relationships with each other and with our, with our landscapes and with our communities. And so what I'm really interested in is like, 
yeah, okay, if we go back to the Middle Ages, we've got this idea of Christmas being this sort of drunken, brawling, communal mess, which sounds kind of fun, but also kind of terrifying as someone who is a bit of an introvert, right? Um, and that's fine. That That is what it is. But what I'm interested in is how how we can look at what Christmas has become, what we've got now, what we've got today, and and say, well, what can we take from this? What can we use? And yes, we want to radicalize it, but actually we also want to lift up the good stuff too. So I, I love Christmas because of a lot of the things that we've actually been quite critical of, right? I love Christmas because it means I get to spend time with my family. You know, I love Christmas because it means that people are in some respect, like more willing to be a little bit happy you know, a little bit happier. Um, They're more willing to say strange things like Merry Christmas. Yeah. And I like that. And I like that because it's part of our shared culture, our shared, uh, you know, identity as well, which I kind of want to be careful with. So what can we do with Christmas as we've got it now? How can we take those traditions, even if they're new? How can we perhaps reclaim some older traditions? And how can we bring in our own traditions to radicalize a message that should be at its core? Um, radical in and of itself. I think that's uh, that's definitely worth it because Christmas is a huge deal. Everybody is already celebrating it. And it's funny when you do talk about like the original meaning. Like I said, I think that's a Protestant thing to do, but Protestantism is just part of both of our cultures and secular cultures in general. I think people, their their attention uh, peaks when they, when they hear let me tell you the original meaning of this thing. It's like, oh yeah, look, tell me. I know that they lied to me. I don't know how they lie to me out there, but I know they're lying to me all the time. So tell me the original meaning. People are very interested, whether they're religious or not, in um, the original Jesus, the original meaning, the original tradition. So I think it's something that I think is is a good conversation opener to get people to start thinking differently about things. And um, and I think it's worth it also because I think it's true that uh, it, it has this original radical core to it all. And also, I'll, I'll say like, like you said about being able to spend time with family. I said this in my video too, like we can talk about how instead of going to your family gathering and saying, you realize this Christmas is just a huge scam that just gets to buy more stuff. Usually they don't want to hear that, but we can also communicate what we're really trying to communicate and say, Hey, I love you. And I care about you as my family. And I love this season because I get to spend time with you. And therefore I don't care about all this stuff that we feel like we have to buy, we have to put on, we have to decorate. Um, I love this season because I love you and I care about you and I want to spend time with you. Everybody's moms out there will love to hear that. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's nice to have one thing on, on the entire run of the podcast that my mom will agree with. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's really important. And and it's really good to pick up on this sort of Protestant thing. You know, the fact that it is a Protestant thing of, of trying to um, get back to the original meaning of whatever. It's really important that we contextualize that historically, you know, where that, that comes from. But it's also, whilst it's, you know, you can, we can do that to a certain extent. Um, and, and I think, and I do think that it's fine to do that. We should also place that firmly within what it's become as well and the, the the journey that Christmas has taken through our cultures. So it's not, it's fine to talk about like the original meaning of Christmas if what you're doing in that is also saying this is what it's become, this is where it's been, and this is a good thing. 
right? Like it doesn't have to be a bad thing that we've got our own traditions um, that have developed over time. I, I think that can be a, a really glorious thing, you know, to, to celebrate as well. Part of the reason for me that I really love Christmas is that I, I grew up in a family that we, we didn't have a lot of money. I think one Christmas, my mum sold her guitar to buy the presents for the kids. And on the one hand, there is a kind of like social pressure, I think, to do that kind of thing. And I get that. And I, and I understand where that comes from. And, and that's something that we really, as a, as a society, probably should look at. But also, for me, it was never about the gifts, you know. It was always about spending time with the people I love and having a meal together. And yeah, yeah. And so I think, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if I'm sort of saying things that, that have sort of been said a million times over in cheesy Netflix movies. But the point is, like, yeah, Christmas really isn't about the gifts. It is actually about stuff that's far deeper than that. It's about Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know someone who's uh, going to be condemned to eternal conscious torment for that comment alone. So many people over here who so badly want to put Christ back in Christmas uh, would uh, crucify Christ. So yeah, no. it's like they have no clue what they're asking for to ask for Christ back at Christmas. Yeah. And really, it's just like they're. So many uh, modern right-wing Christians have just become like the the modern-day Romans and um, just pushing for hegemony. And, and like, the whole idea of, like, that the Christians are the ones being persecuted now the same way that Jesus was is absolutely ridiculous. And it's a misunderstanding of how Jesus was actually persecuted. Jesus was not persecuted because of religious freedom laws. Like, sorry, Jesus, you can't preach your Judaism in public. That's That will offend the pagans. No, the Romans did not kill him because of that. The Romans killed Jesus because his message was a threat to the power of the Roman Empire by yeah. claiming that you're ushering in the kingdom of God. You're assuming the ushering out of the kingdom of Caesar. And so he was put on a cross as a public execution to show this is what happens to people who stand up against the powers that be. And the language that the gospel writers use to even describe all the stories of Jesus, but including the birth of Jesus, are also politically subversive, very anti-Roman Empire, to even call him the son of God, to even call him the king of the Jews. And then also, I'll end with this, the, the bits about... Caesar having a census, and that's why Jesus' parents had to go over to Bethlehem, because that's where they had to be for a census. First off, that makes no sense. That probably didn't happen. Um, but, but Oh, you are getting cold uh, in your sack this yeah. year. <laughs> Can't believe we invited Hold a heretic on, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the King Herod thing probably didn't happen either. Uh, oh, about, my like, goodness. the babies and stuff like that. The the two big reasons why we know that probably didn't happen is first off, the Romans were great at um imperialism and genocide, but uh the second greatest thing they're best at was documentation. And so we would have records of that. But also it doesn't make sense to go, to leave your property behind and go to your dad's house and wait for months to be counted. Um because tax because the purpose of a census was taxation. But anyway, the reason they write that though. And its original readers living in that time period would have known that those those two bits about uh, Augustus Caesar having a census and King Herod sending soldiers to kill babies, they would have saw that 
and laughed because the rulers of the day look like fools because they accidentally help fulfill Jewish messianic prophecy. And so those scenes are supposed to make you laugh and say, ha, these rulers have no idea what's coming for them. And I think today we could see that, that these rulers of our day have no idea what's coming to them, but their collapse is inevitable. And I think that's how we should, um, what do we should remember during Christmas season as well? Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on board today, Damon. Thank you. If you haven't come across Damon's stuff before, uh, we've kind of mentioned in passing, he's done an excellent video about some of the things we talked about called the dangerous centrism of a Carol philosophy. Um, I spent a lot of time practicing before the podcast because instinctively I say it, centrism, which is obviously a horrible mispronunciation, but the dangerous centrism of a Carol philosophy is very, very good, uh, as is all of Damon's work. So I encourage you to seek that out. Uh, Damon, where can people find you? Thank you. And yeah, I'm at youtube.com slash Damon Garcia. And then you can find me on um, Twitter, twitter twitter.com slash who is Damon. And yeah, I'm also on Patreon, patreon.com slash Damon Garcia. You can support my work over there. And um, I have a whole bunch of Advent and Christmas related videos that I'm making right now. So go check out the YouTube channel for all of that. And I mean, that, that last bit that I said about the Christmas story may, may make it sound like I don't care that much about the Bible. I do care about the Bible, and that's why I said that. I take the Bible very seriously, and I love talking about the Bible. And so there, a lot of my Advent videos are talking all about the Bible this month. Brilliant. Uh, we can all look forward to, to seeing some of those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as I say, I'd absolutely go seek out Damon's work. It is really, really very good. And his ability to speak coherently into a camera without having the powers of editing like we do on a podcast is mind-boggling. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Damon. Uh, Adam, where in the world can we find you? Yeah, I'm at on Twitter. You can find me at commie x-i-a-n. I also blog, but we have we are in the process of changing the blog over so it will no longer be called the commie christian it will now be called bread and rosaries to bring it in line with uh, the podcast and that's because you're getting rid of the commie bit to head in a more liberal direction right that's right yeah um, i'm actually a lib dem <laughs> voter now as well um, brilliant uh, <laughs> you can yeah. find the podcast slash the blog uh, on facebook facebook.com slash bread and rosaries uh, on twitter at bread underscore rosaries uh, please get in contact with us if you have anything you want to say unless you want to shout at damon then do it directly to him um, and you can email us at bread and rosaries at gmail.com you can find me at m-o-l-o-n-o molino on twitter and you shouldn't follow me because i will just be being grouchy about christmas on there Thank you very much, guys, and we will see you next time. Cheers. See you next time. Glow from
of the Magnificat are really, really radical. Um, uh, let me just try and find some of it. So, like, she she says things like, um, um, fuck a duck. I remember that, actually. Yeah, that's to the, that is, to the extended version. That is, <laughs> that is in the Lord's original English. <laughs> 